0: Bibles if you just want to read along in your handout, familiar parable, but um, I want to pray before we begin. Father, indeed, you are a consuming fire and you are burning away our dross to consume, our gold to refine. Father, would you refine us tonight? Would you come in this place? Would you be with us? Would you set our hearts on fire as your word is read and preached? Father, would we come alive as we hear words of grace, words of truth, and words of life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know uh, how familiar you are with Christianity or the Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 15, it's a parable unique to the Gospel of Luke, but it might be the most familiar Of Jesus' parable So we've been asking this question this semester Doctor Who Well tonight what Luke wants to tell us Is that Jesus told stories He told a lot of them But here's a familiar one tonight Actually I didn't put it in your hand I want to read the first uh, two verses of Luke 15 And then I'm going to jump ahead and read the parable uh, Most popularly known as the prodigal son Now the tax collectors and sinners Were all drawing near to him To hear him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, "This man receives sinners and eats with them." And so he told them this parable. I'll just to verse 11, and he said, "There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me." And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and he felt compassion. And he ran, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and is alive again, he was lost, and is found, and they began to celebrate Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and never disobeyed your command. This is God's word for us tonight. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Again, if you, if you grew up in or around the church, there's no telling maybe how many times you've heard this parable. Uh, there's one, one of my favorite commentators on this parable. is a guy that's actually well-versed in uh, Middle Eastern culture. And he said something like this about this parable. He said, the more familiar a parable it is to you the more that it cries out to be rescued from the barnacles that have attached itself to itself over the centuries. I love that quote, right? Because I think that rings true for this parable. It's one of those parables that we just automatically assume we know what it's about or we know where the speaker, the guy up front is going to go with it, right? And I don't pretend to offer you the ability to pull the barnacles off for you tonight. But I do want to look at this in in a way... Uh, maybe in a tone of which we've gone the whole semester of learning more about who this Jesus is and why He would tell a parable like this. And what so many people know about this parable, they know about the blatant sin of the, of the prodigal, right? That's why most people refer to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son because that's the one that sticks out. It's the, the one that goes off and just acts like an idiot and wastes everything. But when he comes back to his father to ask for forgiveness, his father doesn't even let him finish the speech, right? Before the father is on him and he's robing him and he's kissing him and he's feasting him and he says, don't say any of that, you're my son. And it's, 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 it obviously sticks out for the lavish forgiveness and grace of the Father here, right? In um, most hymnals, if you're familiar with hymnals, uh, if you look through hymnals, especially the ones that have old songs in them, you'll notice that the most, most titles to most hymns is actually the first line of that hymn. If we we're going to use that rule with this parable, think to yourself, look for yourself, verse 11, what would be the name of this parable? Well, I think it would rightly be there was a man who had two sons. Because that's why I read the first two verses of this chapter. Because the whole reason that Jesus tells this parable is because there were two types of people that were gathering around Him. There was the riffraff, the sinners, right? By the way, the kind of people that you yourself would not have wanted to be around. These people are flocking to Jesus. And then on the other hand, you've got these righteous people. By the way, the type of people you would surround yourself with because it would make you look good. Those kind of people are grumbling. And they don't like the fact that the riffraff are flocking to Jesus and Jesus isn't turning them away. And so in response to that, he tells this parable. A man had two sons. All right? All right. And this is the picture, I think this is a picture worth thinking of it. This is not a crowd around Jesus with tissue in hand, sniffling as Jesus tells a beautiful story of grace. I can actually, with some assurance, tell you that most people who heard Jesus tell this parable would have been offended. So with that in mind, let's look at this parable. Three things there I've got for you in your handout. The essence of being lost. The consequences of being lost. And the remedy for being lost, alright? So the essence of being lost. The essence of being lost is not found solely in the prodigal. Again, a man had two sons. So we're going to think about what is the essence of being lost on Jesus' terms. We have to look at both sons. And that's precisely why Jesus told this parable. So let's deal with the younger son, the prodigal, because he comes first, right? The key... But the younger brother is actually kind of understanding what he's asking for. He comes to his father and he says, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And so here's the thing. The offense of this parable starts right there. Okay? When, y'all know this, you know, we're not really in the same culture anymore. But when does a child receive their parents' inheritance? When their parents die. So this is what the son going to his father is saying. Father, you are better off to me dead. So could you make that a reality to me? That's what he's asking. Right? Give me what's coming to me. Right? And when this, in this culture, as it were, when the father would die, the oldest would get two-thirds of all the estate. Uh, and then any other children after that would split the remaining third. But here a man had two sons, so this one gets a third. But here's again... Um, To add insult to injury, the father now has to liquidate one third of his entire estate. This is not, they didn't have ATMs back then. It wasn't like, let me write you a check or go to the ATM and get some cash. This would have been days upon days of a process of business dealings, transactions, bartering to liquidate all this stuff to give it to the younger brother to fulfill this request. So again, the parable is shocking right out of the gate, one thing after another. Not only does the son ask for this, but the father does it. He just does it. There's no hint of him pushing back at all. And so think about this. Think about the younger son in these terms. The younger son would have been a part of this family for years playing his role, doing what was expected of him, right? Been there to this point, living as a son. But even in just making this request, what the younger son has shown us and shown the world was that he never cared about his father. His heart was only set on his father's things. So when we look at the essence of being lost in the younger son, it's that he had no care for relationship with the father, but only care for his father's things. Well, what about the second son? What about the elder son, right? Because again, Jesus tells us that a man had two sons. Well, where is this older son? Well, here's again an offense of the parable, but this one's implied. The elder son is completely silent. Meaning, this would have brought shock to everyone would have known about the younger son asking for this. This is a village. This family obviously is a prominent family. Okay, they kill a fattened calf and... Beat a whole bunch of people when they celebrate the younger coming back, everybody would have known the ripple effects of the shame that the younger son has brought on this family by making the request that he has. And the elder brother is nowhere to be found. There's nowhere to be found. Later, there is reconciliation, but the elder then comes and refuses to join in. And so actually, you see two equal halves of the story. The first half, the younger brother brings shame on the family being his request. But then in the latter half of the story, there's now another crisis because the elder refuses to take part, adding yet another disgrace to his father. And again... This is blatantly obvious that this was the greatest day in the father's life when the younger son comes back and so he kills the fattened cow. This would have fed 75 to 100 people. People did not eat meat that often back then. This would have been a big deal. But none of it matters to the elder brother. What is that showing us? He did not care about relationship with his father or his brother for that matter. He had his heart set on his father's things. So the essence of being lost is actually found equally, in equal measure, in both brothers. They don't care about the Father. They only care about the Father's things because they only care about themselves. That is the essence of being lost in this story. So you see what, I, you see what Jesus, Jesus is doing, right? This parable was not just targeted to wayward sinners, but it's actually targeted to the religious ones. It's targeted to the righteous ones, the self-righteous ones. He's saying, look, there are two ways to be alienated from my Father. You can do it blatantly through irreligion and making all the wrong choices. But you can do it just as well through religion and through thinking you've made all the right choices. Jesus is saying that the gospel is completely different than anything you've ever heard of. It's not religion. It's not irreligion. It's not morality. It's not immorality. It's not moralism. It's not relativism. It's not conservatism. It's not liberalism. It's no ism that you can think of. It's a different thing altogether. Tim Keller, pastor in New York, he puts it this way. He says, in the gospel's view, everyone is wrong and everyone is loved and everyone is called to recognize this and change. I love that. In other words, what the gospel tells us is that we're all lost. All of us. There's not somebody who's more lost than the other one. That is the essence of being lost. And this is where this really hits home for me. Because you see, in our culture, I don't know if it's a social media thing. I think social media has definitely exacerbated it. But um, in our day and age, whether it's politics, whether it's religion, what, any subject you bring up. The problem in our culture today, I, I'm not an expert, but... That's a hyperbolic statement. But the problem in our culture today is that in every issue, it's like you're only able to make two choices. You're either for us or you're against us. Every single issue that comes into our lives, we have this. I've got more examples that I could say, but here's just a few, right? Like, I can't stand up here and tell you how against abortion I am. Without being assumed, at least by someone, that I'm some Christian fundamentalist, right? Who loves Rush Limbaugh or whatever. I also can't stand up and tell you here that, like, I want to repent of this thing called white privilege, even though I don't really even fully know what it means. Without someone assuming that I'm just some gushy liberal, right? Or, better yet, I can't bring this subject up in the church without someone automatically assuming I must have ulterior motives, God forbid, I just don't want there to be tension between people of color, right? I can't, tell, I can't stand up here as a campus minister on a college campus and tell you what I think is the very clear teaching of the Bible on something like homosexuality without someone assuming that I must think gay people are less than human, So then, all of that and many more examples to come, I also can't stand up here and tell you how I think most Bible-believing, raised-in-the-church people are some of the most pretentious and self-righteous people walking this earth. Right? But at the same time, I also can't tell you that if you live life however you see fit, you are plunging headlong straight into hell. It's the ultimate catch-22, right? What if in the gospel there's a third way? What if there is another way? What if it doesn't have to be so either-or, so black and white in the ways that we have done it for so long, peoples have been doing it for so long, history, century after century, right? What if there was a gospel way where a community of people, that's going to sound really good on the podcast, um, anyway, um, What if there was a gospel way where a community of people who believed the gospel, who believed the gospel told them that seriously, for matter of fact, you are no different than anyone else? Or that our fundamental problem, our most fundamental problem is that we are all estranged and alienated from our Father. Whether we're religious or irreligious that is the essence of being lost the essence of being lost is that we all are that's it let's move on here to the consequences of being lost friend of mine, campus, RUF campus minister at South Carolina, Sammy Rhodes he wrote an article uh, for Desiring God a couple of years ago uh, as the school year got started up and the title of it was College Doesn't Change Your Heart, It Reveals It Uh, And in this uh, article, one of the things that he brings up is that there are basically two fundamental questions that all of us are asking in life. And I I think he borrowed this from another author, but I think it's so true. There's two fundamental questions that all of us tend to be asking in our lives, at least in how we live them. Am I loved? And can I get my own way? And there's nothing like college that brings these two questions to the forefront, Right. Am I loved and can I get my own way? Because you see, for most of you, you've had other people attempt to answer those two questions for you your whole life. And now you're in college, you're in this time of life where you want to know the answers for yourself. And the thing is, how you answer those two questions Am I loved and can I get my own way? How you answer those two questions in your life for the rest of your life will shape your life for the rest of your life. Am I loved? And can I get my own way? What this parable shows us is the consequences of answering those two questions totally removed from relationship to the father. That's what this parable shows for. So quickly, just three consequences that stick out really tangibly to us. The first thing that we see, we see this one in the younger brother. To find the answers to these questions apart from relationship to the father, it starves us. It starves us. It literally eats away at our soul. We see this in the younger brother because when you put your highest hopes in things, it will inevitably destroy you and them. You cannot. This is why the Bible talks about idolatry, right? Idols this, idols that. This is precisely why. Because when you put your highest hopes in things, in the end's end it will destroy them and you. In this culture uh, of which Jesus is living and speaking, when you would take your inheritance, you are accepting a great responsibility. You are accepting a responsibility not only to carry on the inheritance, not only to further and prosper that inheritance, but to also further and prosper the name of which you inherit, right? But the younger goes off and he just leaves his family, he doesn't care. He forfeits any claim that he had to life and blessing because he leaves the family. The culture, This culture was built on family. So in essence, he forfeits life and security. And that choice starves him. It literally starves him of life and its blessings. Second thing it does, it enslaves us. This is the most tangible thing we see in the elder brother. Look at verse 29. His father comes out, and before they can even really start talking, he just says to his father, Look, these many years I have served you. The Greek word is the Greek word for bondage. This is what the elder brother said to his father. Look, these many years I have slaved for you. What does the elder brother show in that moment? He has never known what it is like to be a son because he's lived his entire life as a slave. No wonder he doesn't want relationship with his father because he's only seen his father as a cruel taskmaster. The final, well, not final, but one of the more ultimate things we see in the parable is the destruction of relationship. This is it: These sons were not breaking rules. They were breaking their father's heart. They were breaking the very fabric of their family and they didn't care. Both are saying to their father, To hell with you. Give me your stuff. So, back again Am I loved and can I get my own way? Well, for the younger brother, if you're like the younger brother, what you're going to do is you're going to look to others and things to give you the answers to those questions. And what will either happen for you is either you will end up hating those things or hating those people because they disappoint you. Or they will end up hating you because they can't handle the weightiness of your neediness. Because no one can bear the weight of another person's soul. They weren't made to do that. Am I loved... Can I get my own way? If you're like the elder brother, what you do is you lord it over others. It can be anything, but you're constantly pushing other people to measure up to whatever standard it is that you have set in life. And you will either constantly be pushing them to measure up, or you will shrivel yourself under the weight of that burden because of your lack of assurance in whether or not you measure up. Either way, you're going to be a manipulator constantly trying to get to the top. And again, you see both types of these people in the parable. That's why Jesus tells it. Some of you, look, some of you, you grew up the moral conformity route, meaning you grew up being taught or at least believing that if you just do the right things, everything will be okay. Right? It's the way of the elder brother And if most of you, if you're honest and you grew up that way, you will admit it crushed you. And it is crushing you. And you've either found liberation or you long for liberation of plotting your own way, of plotting your own course in life. People back home might view you as the one that fell off the deep end, right? Because you're not measuring up anymore. Others of you, maybe you've come to a time of deep guilt and shame in your life Because of the pain-crushing experience of self-discovery in some area. And so you actually fled to moral conformity of making the right choices because you thought that would offer you salvation. And you found it coming up empty over and over and over again. Still, other brothers, you live like the younger brother and you couldn't be prouder of yourself. But you see, the irony in that is that you are just as self-righteous as the elder brother. You're just doing it differently. Others of you, again, you resent your own moral conformity. Because you've gotten to know some of those bad people. And you've actually found them to be some of the most loving and realist people you've ever met in your life. And you don't know what to do with it. I think about um, Creed. I love all the Rocky movies. But the latest one, Creed, um, about Apollo Creed's illegitimate son... Who becomes a boxing star, right? He spends this whole movie, he's trying to live up to his father's name. He's an illegitimate son, so there's an element of that, right? The final fight, he's never been a professional boxer, but he's somewhat holding his own, also getting the tar beat out of him with a professional boxer. And finally, Rocky looks at him and says, Look, I'm going to call it. And he says, No, you can't quit. I've got to prove it. And Rocky looks at him and says, You don't have to prove anything. You've already done enough. What do you have to prove? And Creed looks right back at him and says, i got to prove I'm not a mistake. And the whole movie comes together in that moment. Because what you see in that moment is that Adonis has lived his entire life reacting to the belief that he was a mistake. And he thought it was on him to prove that he wasn't. You live life like that, whether living it like the younger brother or living it like the elder brother, you will shrivel and die but your heart will go first. That's what happens to these two brothers. You know, it's to most people. Here it is. To most people, and you've got to own this, to most people, Christianity is nothing more than religion and moralism. And the sad but honest fact is we Christians are most to blame for that. But again, you have to grasp what Jesus is telling us. That both sons, in and of themselves, are utterly self-reliant. But because of that, they are utterly estranged from their father. And it brings nothing but heartache and misery. So what is it? Are we just hopeless? No. You might see there that the the parable ends with the elder still on the outside. So what is the remedy? For being lost. Both sons have openly rebelled and disgraced and shamed their father by their actions. Both of them deserve to bear the shame, the public shame of the disgrace and shame they've brought on their father. In this culture, it would have been entirely appropriate for the father to physically drive both of these sons out of the house and physically assault them. Would have been perfectly culturally acceptable. But he doesn't do it. There's not even a hint of Him doing it. Actually, quite the opposite. What does He do? Well, actually, I offered you what He does, where His heart actually comes at us right out of the beginning. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, we see that after the younger son makes this request... We just read that He divided His property between them. What's interesting there, I'm no Greek scholar, right? But the Greek word property there is not actually the Greek word for like physical possessions. The Greek word there is bios. From which we get our terminology of life. Biology, right? Biography, things like that. So what is the picture that Jesus paints for us in this parable That a man had two sons completely estranged from himself. And he is quite literally willing to tear his life apart to claim them both. That's the picture that Jesus gives us. Because you see, again, there's something glaringly missing in this of the three parables. Parables. In the first two, there are two parables Jesus tells uh, at the beginning of this chapter. There's something lost, but someone goes out to find that lost thing. But in this third parable, no one goes out to find the lost son. Why? Because it quite obviously would have been the responsibility of the elder brother. And he doesn't. He doesn't go. But think about it. Because think about it. What is the only way? And this is the heart of the, son, the elder son's anger. What is the only way that the younger brother can be welcomed back in? What is the only way that the, elder, the younger brother can be robed and can be feasted? The only way that the younger brother can be welcomed in is at the expense of the elder brother. Because what's left is his. And what this story lacks is a true elder brother willing to pay the debt. Now again, think about Jesus telling this parable. At the end of Jesus' life, what do we see Him doing? We see Him crying out to His Father. But the Father doesn't come out to Him. Actually, the door is shut. He's not robed. He's actually... Stripped naked. He's not feasted, he's actually given vinegar to drink. Jesus Christ was miserable for us, stripped naked for us. Why? So that we could be robed in the Father's love. He got the rejection, the shame. And the punishment that we deserved. He bore the shame that we deserved so that we could be openly, abundantly, and freely welcomed by the Father. Here it is. We are all carrying around these broken, restless hearts. Am I loved? And can I get my own way? And this is what Jesus is telling you Yes, you are loved. And no, you cannot get your own way. You can't. Sammy Rhodes again puts it like this. What do we need? We need a heart that has found its rest in him. Restless hearts leave a wake of self-indulgent or self-justifying wreckage behind them. Only hearts that are resting in Jesus are able to embrace all of life with its thrills and its heartbreaks, with its ups and its downs, with the calmness and courage of one whose life is secure because it's tucked away with Jesus above. This is the beautiful thing about what Luke tells us. What tonight Luke tells us is that Jesus told stories. The question Luke leaves you with is what if the story was true? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a balm. We need healing for our restless and wandering and broken hearts. Would you help us to see that our answer is found in you, in your love, in your provision, In your will, would you pour that out on us tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name.